Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. The word impeachment is in the air these days, as congressional committees have begun investigating President Trump and his administration. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a website where you might find what the Constitution's framers thought about impeachment or any other given constitutional issue? Well, the Constitutional Sources Project is the place for you. The project, which is called Consource for short, is a Washington, D.C.-based initiative to digitize and transcribe the documents that shape the Federal Convention. It's also an effort to increase our historical literacy. Consource has also partnered with the Quill Project at Oxford University, which is a digital project that analyzes and interprets how the Constitution was negotiated. Recently, I was lucky to participate in the launch of Consource's State Constitutional Research Network at Gunston Hall, the home of George Mason. The goal of this new phase of the project is to digitize and transcribe documents related to state charters. Now, if you think the federal convention records are awesome, and they are, then you'll love what informed George Mason and James Madison as they wrote the Virginia Constitution of 1776, or John Adams who penned the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. These men wrote these new state charters right in the middle of a war that some Americans were waging for independence. So on today's episode, you'll hear from Julie Silverbrook, Consource's executive director. We recorded this episode in her office in Washington, D.C. Julie is an attorney, and she is leading the charge to help all of us better understand our constitutional history. Now, before we get started, be sure to like and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for next week when Aaron Holmes and Janine Bolt help us map the nation. But for now, let's all get into the Constitution. So we, we're in your office. Uh, you have the Constitution. It looks like copies of the original Constitution taped up along the wall and quotes on the wall as well. And so our listeners are wondering, what is consource or constitutional sources? I gather would be the, the proper Right. Title. So the full name is the Constitutional Sources Project, but consource for short because the full name is a mouthful. <laughs> it doesn't roll off the tongue. Um, and so uh, we are a digital resource for people who want to learn more about the history of the U.S. Constitution. And our primary uh, resource is our digital library of mm-hmm. historical documents related to the creation, ratification, and amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Um, we have this great tool called the Constitutional Index. So we uh, every historical document that we add to our digital library uh, we uh, index to a related clause uh, in the Constitution. Okay. So if you go to the Constitutional Index, you want to learn about you know what's what's in the news today, impeachment. You want to look at some of the impeachment clauses in the Constitution. You can go to that clause. You click on it, and mm-hmm. it's going to bring up the materials in our digital library that are related to that, and it will take you to the particular part of the document uh, of you know various historical documents that are related. Uh, to that. So you'll, you know, uh, a big collection that gets a lot of traffic, James Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention. So you want to get a sense, or actually we have uh, various note takers from the convention, Mm -hmm. but most people rely primarily on Madison. Uh, So you want to, you know, see what was discussed on in the convention regarding impeachment. The Constitutional Index School is going to allow you uh, to do that. We also have a Google search, uh, Google style search feature uh, where you know, if you just want to type in impeachment and see uh, what comes up, mm-hmm. it will bring up things related to um, impeachment. So it can give you a sense of what the founding generation was thinking in terms of executive removal. So it's it's a very timely resource in a lot of ways. I always wonder if there are a lot of staffers on the Hill right now using your resource to sort of break down the particular meanings of impeachment, what the founders thought about it. So it's interesting. So uh, we uh, track our most searched terms mm-hmm. uh, on any given week, uh, and it tends to track uh, with the news, except uh, for around Constitution Day mm-hmm. uh, and Bill of Rights Day, you know, where the most searched term is Constitution and, yeah. you know, Bill of Rights. Uh, but, uh, you know, the last week or so, um, impeachment being the most searched term mm-hmm. uh, on the website, which should not be surprising because that's what's in the news right sure, now. Sure, sure. So take us back to the beginning then because we, we, there's a lot to unpack there. Where where did this project come from? Yeah, so uh, the project was founded in 2005, and the goal of the project, uh, sort of how it came into being, 
um, was that uh, the uh, son of one of our board members Mm -hmm. was writing a paper um, about uh, the religion clauses of the First Amendment and couldn't find any primary source materials online. So this is 2005, so kind of like pre-digital archives in a way. Things were just kind of getting started Mm -hmm. uh, in that space. Uh, And so he said to his uh, father, who's uh, a longstanding board member, um, it'd be great if this stuff was online. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so that was kind of how the idea was born, and that these materials related to uh, the Constitution should be freely available online. Um, And then from there, uh, there, the mission was to to democratize access to Mm -hmm. these materials, to make it easier, uh, more cost-effective, uh, for people to do this kind of research if they were interested. Um, and so the the first phase of the project was just getting the digital library uh, up. Um, and then it was developing the constitutional index tool. Um, and then uh, during the, the course of the organization's history, we realized that a huge user group were educators. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's really what got us into civic education is that the educators like it's great to have access to these primary source documents yeah. but if I'm being candid I don't actually know how to use all of these primary source documents mm-hmm. in a really effective way in my classroom and so we started developing pedagogical materials um, and we do some teacher professional development programs mm-hmm. uh, in order to help teachers better navigate the use of primary source uh, resources in their classroom. And so w- going back to 2005 when this when the young man was writing the paper what you know what was was there anything available at all? I mean I think was at that point had, had Library of Congress put the journals of the Continental Congress online and the in the convention records. And- yeah, so I think there was I I wasn't part of the organization uh, at that time, mm-hmm. so I, I wasn't there for uh, what was available. Um, I didn't become executive director until 2012. Okay. Um, so uh, this is all, you know, kind of mm-hmm. what I've been told, stories that have been <laughs> handed down. The legacy. Um, right. And so um, I'm not exactly sure what what exactly was available mm-hmm. uh, through the Library of Congress in 2005. Um, I do know, you know, that at that time, the most common way for people to gain access to these materials was through large print volumes, uh, yeah. uh, or uh, you would actually have to travel uh, to the archival mm-hmm. institution that, that had the, the records. Um, it's difficult for us to think about it this now um, in 2019, but like, People still use microfilm in 2005, oh, yeah. um, and so there were some records that were available uh, that way as well. And I still use microfilm a lot too. I still <laughs> use microfilm too. That's not to poo-poo on microfilm, but most right. most young people, if you sit them down in front of a microfilm machine, it's like they're looking at a very complex piece yes. of technology. I mean, it's completely foreign. It's like uh, a camera with a flash cube. They're like, "What is this?" Yeah, and so um, you know. I think that the expectation of the modern researcher mm-hmm. and modern student is that the material will be searchable, fully searchable online. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that leads to misconceptions uh, because I think a lot of people just think, well, all of American world history is online. Sure, yeah. um, and, and they have really no idea the amount of work that it takes to actually get that material into a format where it can be mm-hmm. fully searchable, usable. Um, so uh, something that we do in our digital library is that we pair manuscript images with plain text transcriptions. Um, so I think uh, manuscript images are great, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of people can't read manuscript right. images. So to really make the materials usable, you need that plain text transcription to have it in a format that a Google search tool or any search tool mm-hmm. can can use, can right? Find it. Can find it because that's how people search for materials mm-hmm. today. So. You know, we always try to build additional technologies into our digital library to make it as user-friendly as humanly possible. Well, that's great. So, and as you rightly said, that, that takes a lot of work. Uh, and sometimes, you know, people don't quite quite grasp the, the amount of work it takes to do a digital project. So let's let's talk about, you know, how did how did the project begin to you know assemble the materials that they were going to digitize and transcribe, where do they find them? And then how did, how did that process all come together? You know, how did, how did the digitization process work? How did the transcription process work? Who's doing all the heavy lifting to, yeah. to make this possible? So um, a lot of the uh, early materials 
uh, that went into the digital library are available in print. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, the published volumes uh, were about to uh, put up um, several, uh, most of the volumes of uh, John Kaminsky's documentary history of the ratification okay. of the Constitution. Um, although we're, uh, he's one of our board members mm-hmm. also. Um, Although we are also transcribing the materials that were in the supplements, uh, which were not oh, fully right. transcribed, so we're kind of you know adding a little bit mm-hmm. uh, to that collection, um, which takes a lot of time. Sure. Um, so there there are uh, technologies that um, you know optical character recognition mm-hmm. scan technologies and others uh, that create a machine produced transcription. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to be laden with errors. Sure. Um, so yeah. there's a lot of uh, human involvement mm-hmm. uh, that's needed. So, you know, for that particular project, for example, uh, we have a full-time program manager who, like, that's basically what he's working on right now. Okay. Uh, that's his biggest project, and that, and he's been, uh, you know, plugging away um, at correcting the computer-generated transcriptions. Uh, in the past, and we'll we'll talk about this uh, when we get to the early state constitution yep. project. We're talking about. Uh, a larger volume of uh, documents where you don't mm-hmm. have uh, any print volume to serve as a basis yeah. uh, for the transcriptions. Um, there, you're talking about leveraging trained volunteers mm-hmm. uh, because there's just quite frankly no other way uh, to do that. And I think you see this basically with almost every digital project uh, or, or even non-digital project sure. at this point where you have a mass amount of documents and uh, you need to get them transcribed. So there's crowdsourcing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, in the past, there were efforts to do crowdsourcing, but we found that there it actually took more time to correct oh, yeah. the mm-hmm. crowdsourced transcriptions. So instead we do trained volunteers um, and you can use college students, uh, law students, uh, you know, students who are in master's mm-hmm. or PhD programs uh, in history. It's content that they're really interested in, um, and so uh, we tend to try to leverage trained student volunteers. Sometimes we'll have uh, lawyers who are particularly passionate about the Constitution and its history who want to volunteer. Mm-hmm. So typically what we do is we put out a call uh, for volunteers when we need a large volume of uh, volunteers to help us with transcription work. That's nice, too, because in crowdsourcing, and I've done some some work with that as well, and you know sometimes it works really well, and sometimes you get you get lucky, and you get someone who has some previous experience and some background, and so they fully invest themselves in the project. And right, like yeah. they're going to invest the time yeah. to to figure this out. So so that's why going to to students is really helpful. So um, in uh, previous years, we've done uh, courses for credit with students. Mm-hmm. Um, is this like George Mason, George Washington, places like that, or where? where is um, this being so done? the so this was at uh, BYU. Uh, oh, we okay. Had a, we had a course, uh, and uh, then it was like sort of an externship, mm-hmm. sort of type credit. Um, and so, uh, you know, it it's a different model mm-hmm. depending on what we're doing. We haven't had a need, uh, although we will need to do this again for early state sure. constitutional records uh, to have a full course. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to do that work, uh, but uh, it, it's an option, and, and the students, I think, get a lot uh, out of it. Right. Um, and I think, you know, for from the perspective of thinking about, well, what do I do with a PhD in history or a master's degree in history? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think this kind of digital archival work mm-hmm. is really a, a future uh-huh. area, um, and so it's really great to give uh, even undergraduate students who are thinking about maybe doing a master's or PhD program to think about the fact that, you know, there may be opportunities mm-hmm. for them in the digital history space. Well, it's really interesting you bring that up because one of the things that's, that I'm looking at these days, and, and I think all the papers, like, the, you know, the flagship papers right. project, Washington, Madison, they're all facing the fact that most everything has gone digital. That right. People, as you say, expect that content. And so... They also expect it faster. They all expect, yeah, they expect I have a it great faster. appreciation for my friends at the Founding Fathers Paper Projects because they, I mean, the the current editorial staffs mm-hmm. just have an immense amount of pressure on them to get this material out as quickly as Lickety possible. Lickety split. Yeah. But it, but it also raises the the, the point that um, you know the letterpress editions are is on that size and scale are probably a thing of the past at this point, and so now we're thinking about okay. We want documentary editions to continue, but what form are they going to take, and how do we mobilize labor resources 
to do these kinds of this kind of work because there's all these wonderful projects out there that we all want to see done, but we, you know, we, we're still sort of figuring out what's the model. And so, how do you see you know common source as a kind of model that fills that gap, but also as you were saying the, the digital archives uh, gap, or not really gap, but the the trajectory of archives to be online in a more complete and uh, sustainable way. Yeah, so I, I think there is still a tension that exists. So, so my experience with the editors of these kinds of volumes is, of course, we want this to be generally mm-hmm. accessible and we get that the you know internet is as it is mm-hmm. and people expect this material to be in an open access format. And the tension between that and you know publishers' interests in, well, we just put all this right. money into publishing these volumes we expect to, you know, make some money off of mm-hmm. them. Um, and so I, I still think that that's a very real issue and, and one that we have to navigate. And I think you always want to do things with respect to intellectual property rights mm-hmm. and publisher rights and all of those sorts of things. Um, but I do think, uh, you know, just if you look generally at uh, information channels, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we are going toward a low-cost, no-cost uh model for, mm-hmm. for information access. Um, and so I, I think that's just something that we're still trying to figure out mm-hmm. as, a, as a community. We've always been uh, open access, you know, but that means that we raise all of our money right. uh, to, to support this work and we're not making revenue um, on what we're producing. And so, you know, the question is, is that sustainable mm-hmm. across the board? Um, and uh, that's also an open question, mm-hmm. and I don't know that I have uh, a, a well-thought-out answer to how you deal with that. I do think philanthropy has a role uh, to play, and I do, uh, I do believe that this is information for the public mm-hmm. good. Um, and so, you know, th- there's clearly a, a, a good reason why you should sure. support projects like this. Um, but I, I also think there there needs to be some education of mm-hmm. people who might be interested and funder, you know, foundations corporations, uh-huh. et cetera, individuals who might be interested in funding these sorts of things um, as to why it's important, uh, who's using it, uh, and why. Uh, and then, you know, also as a community for us to start thinking about um, how we all work together, mm-hmm. so so how different digital libraries can actually interact mm-hmm. uh, in a meaningful way. And uh, the Mellon Foundation and NHPRC right. have these collaborative uh, grants that they've been working on. Um, so I think they're in sort of like the, maybe one of the final rounds mm-hmm. uh, of that where, um, you know, various groups are working together to answer some of those questions. Yeah. So so what does it look like? How do we provide the best tools for exploiting various types of materials? Uh, how, do, how does uh, a... Uh, you know, sort of content aggregating type digital library like mm-hmm. Consource interact with a uh, flagship paper project like the Washington Papers, mm-hmm. for example. So, um, you know, and the the goal of that being uh, how do we get various historical documents the largest possible audience of potential sure. users. Um, and so I think all of that is an open discussion mm-hmm. right now. And I think it's great that um, you know, there's so much openness, mm-hmm. um, and that this is being driven by uh, a major institutional funder, um, the Mellon Foundation and the NHPRC, to start thinking about um, how these things could work together. Um, and so, I think this is a really exciting time to be uh, part of conversations mm-hmm. about the future uh, of digital uh, libraries, digital archives, etc. Well, I think you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things you've touched on is that collaboration is key here. Like, you know, a rising tide really does lift all boats. I it, say that all the time. And, you know, the olden days, who are, however long those were, you know, you could have a project that sustained itself with a single funder if you were attached to a university. But to do these kinds of projects, especially digital projects, you've got to leverage expertise across the board and also financial resources to achieve your goals. Because yeah. I think, as you said... Or you, you alluded to, open access is great, but open access is not free, and so who's going to pay for it? How are you, what's your sales pitch, in a sense? You know, how, are you, well, how are you trying to um, justify the work that you're doing, and how, you know, how do you think? Uh, I, guess, I guess the big, the big so what question, you know, why does it matter? Yeah, so I think we have a little bit of an advantage in that we focus uh, fairly narrowly on constitutional mm-hmm. history, 
Um, so, you know, uh, we know that our digital resource has been used uh, by attorneys arguing cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, we, you know, it's been referenced in, in other uh, in other ways by um, journalists, scholars, etc., writing on contemporary constitutional mm-hmm. issues. So the the sales pitch is: if you want to understand, pick any constitutional issue du jour. Right there, there's a new one every day. Right. You want to have a better understanding of the history of that particular issue, then you know, we need to have the resources to be able to get all of those materials mm-hmm. up online um, to supply that information. Mm-hmm. And so for us, um, in, in uh, the sales pitch is a little bit easier. And in, in moments in American history where the Constitution is in the news more, um, you know, that gives a sense of urgency mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, we might not otherwise have um, at moments when, you know, people aren't necessarily talking about the Constitution. Constitutional crises are good for business. I hate to say it. You said it, not me. I, I might have said that uh, in uh, uh, behind closed doors, but um, not that not that we think it's it's good. Right, but it no. underscores the necessity mm-hmm. of projects like this, and I think of really any project aimed at historical and constitutional literacy. Um, right. And and that, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. You no, can, I was say I was. That's what I wanted to ask you because it. You're you're cultivating multiple audiences: lawyers, historians, educators, students, you know, yeah. teachers, whatnot. So it, it it seems like what part of the the the, uh, the motivation behind the project is also to sort of fill a knowledge gap, you know, a basic yeah. constitutional uh, historical literacy about the the formation of our republic's government charter, and then the ways in which we interpret it or choose to ignore it. And so, what's what's your sense of um, of historical literacy in that regard, uh, it, it's not good. Uh, you know, we, we the Annenberg Public Policy Center mm-hmm. at UPenn uh, releases a survey every year, um, and you know, I think it's like a third of all Americans can't name any branch of government. There are only three, right? Like this is yeah. not particularly complicated. It's fairly rudimentary. Um, so you know, uh, people don't know enough, mm-hmm. um, and I think that feeds lots of pathologies uh, within uh, sort of, you know, the, the uh, body politic mm-hmm. uh, in the United States. And I think we see that manifested, you know, going back to this idea of um, constitu- when, whether you want to use the term constitutional crisis, I kind of say, you know, we're in a moment of great constitutional anxiety. Oh. Um, I have a higher threshold for yeah. what an actual crisis I like anxiety. Is, nice. but, yeah. but it is, you know, people are very anxious about this. And, um, you know, we have found, and I've found personally, just the number of people who reach out to say, mm-hmm. you know, never really thought about the Constitution, but I now feel like I need to know something mm-hmm. about it because it seems important that citizens are armed with this information. Um, you know, there's a, a show that's actually coming to the Kennedy Center. It was on Broadway called What the Constitution Means to oh, Me. Cool. That ended up kind of being a hit. She was uh, nominated for a Tony. I think she also might have been nominated for a Pulitzer, Heidi Schreck, uh, who wrote mm-hmm. that. I wrote that uh, show, um, and I think that is reflective of the fact that uh, people are hungry for more content, mm-hmm. um, and that a lot of these people, you know, uh, we uh, reduce the amount of time uh, that history and civics are taught mm-hmm. uh, in our nation's schools, so uh, they probably didn't get as much information as they needed or possibly yeah. wanted uh, when they were in school. Um I think only between like 18 and 20 percent of colleges and universities require any basic coursework mm-hmm. in American history and government. Um, so it is entirely possible that there, well, I know that there are lots of people, uh, adult uh, people today, uh, who just did not get an adequate civics and history education and now are kind of trying to see correctives for that. But at the same time, there are also people who are, I think, just fine not knowing, going about their, sure. their business because, you know, the... the uh, you know, uh, cost reward ratio mm-hmm. doesn't make sense for them. It would take a lot to learn about these things. These are fairly nuanced issues. Um, this we get a lot of frustration when uh, we have uh, journalists call us and they're like, "So what is what does the history say?" <laughs> and I, you know, I, I usually say, "Well, if it's a contentious issue today, there's a pretty good chance it was a contentious issue sure. then." Um, and so there isn't always a clear cut uh, answer. And I and they mm-hmm. get really frustrated and they're like, "Well, tell me what." you think, uh, and I said, what I think is not really part of the the project, Uh, if you're asking me, you know, what did the people who framed the Constitution think, 
um, I'm going to supply you with information, mm-hmm. giving the, the varied views uh, back then. That, I think, can be really unsatisfying uh, for people who are looking for a definitive answer, like James Madison said, yeah. right? And so this is this is the answer to that question. Well, and it gets at the, the whole debate between originalism and sort of the, the idea of a living constitution, right? right? Like, there is one thing we know about the constitution. They said this, and it was fixed in time, and by God, we must adhere to what Madison and whatever else those guys wrote. Whereas, you know, others are like, well, it actually, it adapts to the living experiences and and can't necessarily give you a concrete answer about, you know, how we should apply the Constitution in any particular moment unless we have certain circumstances and facts before us that help us sort of guide guide the way we should use it. Um, I mean, and I'm sure that when people are Googling impeachment right now, they're thinking about the same thing. What... What is a high crimes and misdemeanors? Right. Uh, is, is, does that get a really clear definition, mm-hmm. or is it sort of you know amorphous and, and gray? And I, you know, I, I think that for a lot of these kind of more difficult questions, mm-hmm. it's not perfectly clear. What we do have is sort of accumulated experience, right? We have some impeachments uh, from mm-hmm. American history that we can look back on and say, well, that clearly met the the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, does you know what's Does happening this. today meet the standard? And th- those are open. Those are open questions, open questions. and it, it's ultimately up to members of Congress to mm-hmm. make those determinations. Right. So, so when a reporter calls you, you're not going to. Well, this <laughs> is why it's frustrating for them, right? And but you know, we're we're nonpartisan. Yeah. My job is to expose you to the variety of yeah. uh, viewpoints that were present mm-hmm. uh, during the era in which the Constitution was framed and ratified, and. Uh, sometimes that doesn't give a really clear answer, mm-hmm. and I and I do think that that can be uh, unsatisfying to a lot of people, and I appreciate that. Uh, but um, you know, we have to stay true to sure. our mission, which is really just an educational yeah. uh, function. So um, you know, I think there there are some people who just won't won't call back uh, at the right. end of the day because they want they want me to say, well, if you read the sources mm-hmm. in this particular way, uh, then you can say, you know, the weight of the sources in yeah. one direction or the other. And, and sometimes there are, you know, conceivably issues where that is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, you know, again, uh, if it's newsy, uh, it's, right, it's going to be, right. I would say, if it's going to be like a 5-4 Supreme Court opinion, then there's good evidence on, on both sides. Both sides. Right. Um, and so, you know, the question is, like, where's the weight of the evidence? Mm-hmm. What other... Uh, jurisprudential tools are you using uh, to determine the outcome mm-hmm. of a particular live constitutional dispute um, and you know yeah. that's for the for the people who get paid to make those decisions and then you can and, recommend six or seven books that have four or five different opinions on right and the, right I mean you know uh, lots of scholars have have made a mm-hmm. you know lifetime uh, career out of you know the nuances of these particular right. issues I mean if you just look at um the Second Amendment, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many books have been written about the Second Amendment since sure. D.C. v. Heller, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so, uh, and and arguing opposite sides um, of, of that and, you know, lots of, been, lots of ink spilled uh, on the topic mm-hmm. um, and, you know, people believe what they believe uh, and, you know, they can shepherd evidence to, to make that argument. I mean, both the uh, majority and dissenting opinion in Heller used primary source yeah. documents. They use the same primary right. source documents. They read them uh, as, you know, in a different way. Um, and so, you know, that's not uh, an indictment of originalism. Uh, you know, we've had, obviously, originalists being interested in the mm-hmm. sources we have. We, we've had um, some programs about originalism versus living constitutionalism, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of more progressive originalism versus more conservative originalism, because originalism has become a much broader tent. Sure. Um, we're sort of agnostic about these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, great. Our resources are here for anyone who'd like to use them however they'd like. Uh, yeah. It's just not our position to, to take a position sure. on, on how they're used. Well, that makes total sense. You know, just please cite our sources <laughs> in right. a lot of ways. Right, right. Well, going back to the, uh, the the point you raised about the lack of education about the Constitution, I mean, what do you think explains that? Because, you know, we tell ourselves that, as Americans, that we should be deeply invested in, you know, our own government, and we should we are in control of our government, and therefore we should be knowledgeable about how it works. And so what do you think explains the 
the emphasis on constitutionalism and civics in public schools or private schools or wherever school, what have you, when we keep telling ourselves this idea that uh, you know it is in our civic interest to have uh, oversight of our government, and as you rightly say, most folks aren't getting a good education about how things actually work. Right. So um, I think it's probably a number of factors, but I think, uh, and I don't have a problem with schools emphasizing college and career readiness, mm-hmm. but as that has become, I think, much narrower, there's been this sense that civics and history and the humanities are kind of, you know, like, oh, that's an interesting intellectual activity, mm-hmm. um, but what we really need to focus on is uh, getting kids into college mm-hmm. or getting kids jobs. Um, and so I, I think that's been, uh, at least in the modern period, uh, part of um, what's allowed for the minimization of civics and history uh, in the classroom. Still required uh, in a lot of places, but just not enough time allocated uh, over the course of your educational tenure. you know, I, I I know there are a lot of people who, um, you know, blame high-stakes testing, mm-hmm. and I do think uh, too much emphasis on testing uh, can definitely just minimize the amount of classroom time for creative exercises to help people think about the way that government actually uh, works. Mm-hmm. Um, testing is good for accumulating data, but I think we could rethink the way that we test um, in the civics and history space. So that we're actually, first of all, not just evaluating uh, raw, oftentimes regurgitated information, Mm -hmm. um, but actually thinking about how we get uh, young people to encode this information in their head uh, and develop not only civic knowledge, but skills, dispositions, values, all of those things Mm -hmm. uh, that I do think are really essential for a well-functioning democratic system of government. Uh, Absolutely. And and so you said... Right now, uh, the what you've accomplished so far with consorts, you've had the, the records of the federal constitution mm-hmm. up. How have you seen educators use that material in their classrooms, or how have you worked with educators to develop pedagogical content? Yep. So uh, we, uh, just in the last two years, uh, released a, a whole uh, curriculum called Choosing to Make a Nation. Mm. Um, it's interactive. It gets the students, it puts the students in the role of the decision makers. So, you know, we have like a constitutional convention unit where, you know, the students are broken up into groups where they represent um, states or regions um, and they actually have to figure out, you know, what, why certain issues were negotiated in a particular way. Why did you arrive at that compromise? And then to say, well, would I agree with that mm-hmm. today? Um, and so it gives students voice, agency, all of the things that I think are really important for developing, like I said, not just knowledge, but yeah. also dispositions. Um, and just from my own personal experience in schooling, I know that the more interactive uh, lessons I had from teachers mm-hmm. are ones that still stick with me sure. to this day, um, or even going into college and law school. I mean, a dry lecture you, you know, it's in one ear, out the other, yeah. and you kind of keep yeah. it for as long as you need it. Need it, and then it's and then gone. It, and then it's gone. Um, but for the educators who, you know, do something that's really engaging and, you know, that makes you have to evaluate things on your own, you retain that in a completely mm-hmm. different way. Um, I can remember very distinctly um, doing a whole government simulation uh, in a middle school class, uh, and I can remember almost every moment of that simulation yeah. from middle school uh, because uh, it was unique, interactive, engaging, all of those things. And I do think there's a trend uh, across the subjects uh, to uh, give uh, students more space to actively participate, mm-hmm. trend away from just the pure lecture uh, format. Um, and teachers are hungry for that. So uh, that's a great resource. Otherwise, just giving teacher, teachers um, greater exposure to the range of primary source mm-hmm. documents and helping them th- think through how they can integrate it into what they already have if they don't want to just kind of, you know, adapt or fully use the curriculum that we've provided. Um, and I think both, basically everybody in the civic education space has like sort of two tracks of things they provide mm-hmm. for, for teachers. So one is um, you know, kind of supplemental resources that can be integrated into what you have, um, and then uh, you know, fully formed 
lessons and units mm-hmm. uh, and or a full curriculum, uh, which uh, if a teacher w- was interested in doing this, uh, they could use uh, in their classroom and, of course, make all of the kinds of adjustments they need to make uh, to accommodate the realities of their particular sure. classrooms. Um, and so uh, we try to provide both resources and doing professional uh, development. Uh, we worked with this great uh, teacher uh, who, uh, you know, I said, what do teachers want? And she's like, what do we want? Primary sources. When do we want them? Now. <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, and again, that the, our uh, entry into civic education came about very mm-hmm. organically um, because there was such a huge demand mm-hmm. from teachers to say, we love these resources. Help me figure out how to effectively use this in my classroom. Um, and I do this uh, experiment from time to time with teachers because I think a lot of times educators are like, well, I'll just give the primary source to my student and, you know, it will open all of these pathways in their brain right. and, and expand their horizons. And so um, I always like to demonstrate to educators uh, how um, frustrating that process might be for sure. students. So I'll give them a Federalist paper and I'll say, okay, um, I'm, I hand it out and, I, and I'll say, all right, uh, take about 10 minutes to read and then I'm going to call on one of you at random to tell me what Alexander Hamilton uh, mm-hmm. said uh, in this Federalist paper. Just the look of horror <laughs> on their yeah. faces. I had, I've had times where like a teacher is like, never mind this, right. and walk out. And then, you know, I, I let them go for about two minutes reading it. And then I said, and you know, see, you know, just absolute stress, mm-hmm. sweat. And then I said, you know, I'm not actually going to make you read this whole Federalist paper. I'm doing this because when you when you assign something like this to your students, they have the exact same reaction mm-hmm. or worse. And so what we really need to do is equip young people with the tools to figure out how to navigate these resources before we just throw it at them. Right. Um, and so you know, that's sort of the, the point of that thought experiment is to, you know, expose teachers to the, the stress that their students yeah. have. Um, and at the, at the same, by the same token, uh, when we do our student-centered curriculum, we do professional development for that, we run the teachers through the same thing, mm-hmm. and they get a lot more out of it, and they're reading primary source documents, but they're being guided through them uh, through this uh, choice-centered mm-hmm. uh, curriculum, and they learn more. Um, and they oftentimes find out, you know, oh, there was something I, I didn't realize um, about the history here, um, and I've been teaching this for yeah. you know twenty thirty years. So, well, and it raises a, a you know a good point. I think that just because you built something doesn't mean they're necessarily going to come. That's right. Um, and everything I think that we do in digital humanities, digital history, ought to be done with a purpose, as opposed to just sort of putting it out there and saying, "Have at it, folks." Well, this goes back to I think how do you how do you sell this to potential mm-hmm. funders? I uh, which is. You know, you do have to, and we, you know, you have various different funders who have different interests and in yeah. why this material should be online, but you do have to have a why. Right. Why is this needed? Um, so, it, you know, I, I just don't think it's it's uh, good enough in many cases mm-hmm. to just say, well, I think it should be up online. I right. I think it's, you know, why should you put something up online that is only going to have, like, I don't know, 100 users mm-hmm. uh, nationwide? I mean, but when you're talking about, the historical space or the constitutional history space in particular, um, like I said, it's kind of easy to make that mm-hmm. argument um, at, at this point. Sure. Um, but, you know, educators really are a huge consumer um, of these materials. And I think for uh, a lot of the Founding Fathers papers, there uh, you see this at uh, the George Washington papers mm-hmm. and the Adams family papers, They're, they actively engage with um, educators and are thinking about additional ways to engage mm-hmm. with educators because I think there's an appreciation for the fact that teachers are a large consumer group. It's not just historians, mm-hmm. academic historians that are consuming these right. resources. Well, and exactly because I think if you built something that was just for a very discrete group of people, well, you probably wasted your time and resources, especially if you're digitizing something as massive as records of the federal convention. But there is that other side of it, though, where you are working with university partners like Oxford University and Professor Nicholas Cole on the Quill Projects. And so I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, what's the Quill Project and then what's the relationship between Consource and that initiative? So the so Quill uh, launched a couple of years ago with the goal of kind of modeling 
legislative style debates, and they started with the Federal Constitutional Convention records, uh, which is how we ended up uh, linking up um, in the first place. So, uh, were they using your site to do their work, or they were? They were mm-hmm. using Consource and a couple of other uh, resources uh, as well to kind of populate mm-hmm. uh, their their resource. And, and Nicholas is a very collaborative person; doesn't want to reinvent the wheel. So, so why duplicate right. work? Exploit the resources that are already available. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, we, Nicholas and I always look at this sort of as a as a pipeline. Um, so, you know, there's that, the, the sort of human archival work, mm-hmm. um, how do we get this material into various, you know, how do, how do we, A, organize it, collect it, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, then there are, um, you know, sort of the digitization and transcription mm-hmm. work, uh, put into a digital library with various search tools. And then sort of the, one of the ends of that, uh, continuum is this kind of modeling, mm-hmm. uh, work, which can also, uh, be quite useful in finding holes, uh, in the records, uh, cause if it's, sure. you know, so if there's a, there's a question, uh, that comes up during the convention, for example, uh, and the, the records are silent on that, mm-hmm. do we need to find additional supplemental materials to mm-hmm. fill that gap? And also, uh, when you're working off of a print volume, uh, we oftentimes don't know why editors made decisions to include certain things mm-hmm. and not include uh, certain things. So oftentimes mm-hmm. there's gaps because there were editorial choices mm-hmm. that were made that made perfect sense when we were talking about print volumes, right, where you, you, know, you, you can't, right. can't print everything. Uh, but you know, now that we're talking about the digital space um, and modeling where we can say, well, you know, clearly this print edition didn't include, mm-hmm. you know, this block of materials, so we have to go bl- back and fill uh, that gap. So modeling can be really helpful mm-hmm. in helping to identify uh, those gaps, which is really critical if you want to have a really full picture sure. um, of uh, the debates over the Constitution or the Bill of Rights or the 14th Amendment mm-hmm. or, you know, all of the Reconstruction Amendments. Um, it's a really useful tool mm-hmm. uh, in doing that. And so for us, it just makes uh, total sense to, to work together. We did it with the federal uh, convention materials um, and we're doing it now with uh, state constitutions. Um, and there, again, I, Nicholas and I talk fairly regularly, uh, but I, his interest in state constitutions and my interest in state constitutions uh, sort of developed independently of each other. And okay. we were, you know, we grabbed drinks and we were talking and I said, oh, you know, state constitutions. And he's like, no. It's like, I've been thinking about state constitutions. <laughs> like, we need to do this. And so um, that's really how we we came together. Uh, we're working with uh, LLMC, uh, which is the law mm-hmm. library media company. And they are digitizing this microfilm collection that the Law Library of Congress has. Um, the microfilm collection was put together in the 1940s, I yeah, think. Sounds about right. Um, and uh, they collected various state uh, materials, uh, not just state mm-hmm. constitutional materials, but various state materials. And so we're, we're working with LMC to get those materials digitized and transcribed because uh, that's uh, something that's already been collected, which is helpful. Uh, and uh, from there, uh, we know that there are gaps uh, in the resources. So from there, uh, we're working to mm-hmm. fill the gaps in that Um so the, the federal convention, in some ways, was a discrete project. Because it was. It's huge, but it's discrete. Right. The states are a, are a, a, a different animal. Completely right? different animal. So first of all, uh, there, nowhere near uh, as much effort has been put into mm-hmm. uh, collecting these resources. In fact, I, I would argue that fairly, you know, kind of very little. Probably uh, even for the original 13. Right. Think. No, yeah. so even for those early state constitutions, um, you know, so... I, we, uh, as you know, because you were there, right. uh, launched this early state constitution network last week uh, to, uh, you know, have a better sense of what people are doing mm-hmm. uh, related to state constitutions. Um, and I, I think one of the things to come uh, out of that meeting and some other uh, research that we've done is that in some cases, uh, we don't even have an agreed upon final text uh, of the state uh, constitution. Uh-huh. Um, and so, I, you know, that tells you something. So like at least in the federal constitution we're basically we're almost mm-hmm. always talking about the same final uh, document. Right. Um, the uh, states have uh, various 
different uh, practices for preserving records, mm -hmm. the note-taking um, during particularly the early, uh, so the revolutionary era mm -hmm. period, um, isn't great. Uh, the official journals often don't just, you know, record very right. basic information. And so, you know, we don't have, um, or at least we're not aware at this point of, of anything analogous to mm -hmm. Madison's notes uh, right. to to the convention where, you know, you have uh, somebody's recollection of uh, the the actual debates that occurred mm -hmm. where you're actually assigning, uh, you know, uh, text and, and um, you know, speeches to particular mm -hmm. uh, actors. Uh, we don't see something like that really uh, in the state context, or at least we haven't seen that yet. Um, so there's a lot of work that needs to right. be done in the state context, and I think there is a misconception Again, uh, that oh well, all of these materials are are available. It's just a question mm -hmm. of digitizing and transcribing, and and the the work is much more complicated right. than that because there's still a lot of archival work that needs to happen. Um, and then even then, um, just thinking really creatively about how to gap fill mm -hmm. uh, because the the official records themselves aren't as good as we might mm -hmm. want them to be. So, are you focused on at this point on sort of those very early? Constitution, so the Virginia Constitution of 1776, the Massachusetts 1780, those kinds of... So we are focused, uh, our particular interest is starting there, mm -hmm. uh, but going up through the antebellum period. Okay. Um, I, I think that there are, uh, there is going to be requests to keep going mm -hmm. um, on state constitutions. I'm just aware of mission drift and just sure. wanting to keep the focus on, and this is how I, I talk about it. So you look at the Constitution as kind of the refractory point. So it's like all of the input into the mm -hmm. Constitution, so all of the state constitutions that helped inform the drafting of the Constitution, mm -hmm. and then the extent to which the federal Constitution impacted later constitutions. I see. Um, and then I think you could go you could make an argument that, um, you know, obviously the Reconstruction Amendments inform state constitution mm -hmm. uh, writing as well. Oh, um, sure. Well, I mean, they've got to rewrite constitutions right, exactly. to accommodate for that. Right. So uh, I could justify that, right? I, that makes total sense. It's consistent mm -hmm. with our mission. Um, and so, you know, we'll go probably go through, you know, Reconstruction. Reconstruction. Um, and then, um, you know, for the purposes of what we do, uh, then our work would be complete, but in terms of how other people could exploit all mm -hmm. of those resources to look at more contemporary constitutions, we would gladly collaborate with anyone who oh, wants yeah. to use uh, the resources. And again, everything we do is collaborative, everything we do is open access, uh, but that does mean that it, it requires philanthropic mm -hmm. uh, support. We're not trying to make money on any of the content. Uh, our goal really is to uh, allow for the materials to be exploited by as many mm -hmm. projects as humanly possible. So you are you are a five hundred one c three. We are uh, nonprofit. Uh, I take it then you have uh, support from private donors and then probably grant funding as well. Is that grant true? funding, private donors, uh, some corporate funding? Mm -hmm. um, it's a you know we try to have a nice mix. Mm -hmm. uh, but like any five hundred one c three, we could always use more resources, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I hear that. So you mentioned collaborative projects as part of your mission. What what kind of spin-off projects would you like to see? I mean, granted, you know, you don't want to dictate terms to people because one of the fun things about these projects is that people take them in directions you can't possibly imagine. Uh, but what what would what would you sort of like to see come out of out of this more broadly in terms of other projects? Yeah. So I mean. I think what Nicholas is doing at Quill with the modeling mm -hmm. is really interesting. I think there are other ways to use uh, computer-assisted technologies to uh, better uh, navigate a, a fairly large corpus of historical materials. Um, so, you know, the sky's the limit. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of how people use things in sort of a non-technical uh, Way, um, love to continue seeing educators mm -hmm. use this. Continue seeing um, other uh, nonprofit organizations in the civic and history education space come to our resource, use those primary source documents if they want to and need to. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I, I hope it helps inspire projects that are transitioning mm -hmm. from sort of a print to digital format to think about how to do that in the most open, collaborative way possible um, and we like to uh, you know be on hand to assist with questions about collaboration and open access sure. because we've always been collaborative and we've always 
been an open access uh, resource. So I'm actually really excited to see probably the next 10 to 15 years mm-hmm. holds uh, for digital history projects uh, because I do think, again, the, the appetite for these materials is real. Um, I also think technology is evolving in such a way that we're going to be able to do some really innovative things mm-hmm. um, and probably things that I can't think of sitting here right now, <laughs> yeah. uh, but some really brilliant person sure. uh, will, will think about. But that is not to say that there aren't some very real challenges in terms of even just digitizing and transcribing these right. materials to get them up online. And that's something that we are very interested mm-hmm. in finding a technological uh, solution to. Because again, I just don't think uh, funders or uh, consumers of this information are willing to wait 50 years, uh, right. or 10 years even, uh, to gain access to these materials. It's, you know, when do we want primary mm-hmm. sources? We want them now. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you want something very specific, um, and there's a lack of appreciation for all of the work that mm-hmm. goes into making that uh, generally available in the in the first place. So I would just urge uh patience and if you're if there's stuff that you want up online sooner uh you know contact us mm-hmm. and you know we'll we'll use your appeal uh in our appeal to <laughs> to 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 motivate. To, to motivate uh to motivate funders and and other people in this space to uh you know try to be a little bit more expedient equitable mm-hmm. more urgency well julia if, if somebody wants to contact you uh either to learn more about how to use your resources or maybe make a contribution how should they do that Yep, uh, www.consource.org. Uh, if you go to our About page uh, and you look up our staff, my email address uh, is on there, and I would welcome people to email me. I'm also on Twitter at JM Silverbrook, and uh, Consource is on Twitter at Consource. You message either one, uh, that message will uh, either directly come to me on my personal page or indirectly get to me uh, <laughs> if you message the uh, Consource Twitter page. And I'm always happy to talk to people, to answer questions, even if I give a, well, there's evidence on both sides, unsatisfying right. uh, answer. Um, I'm always happy to answer any questions and help people learn more about the Constitution and its history. Well, great. And I, I hope people come to your site and learn. You know, it's pretty fabulous. It's got some terrific resources, and I'm excited to see where it goes. And felt very fortunate to be at the launch of the State Constitutions Network, and um, I think good things are ahead. Well, Julie, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with assistance from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our theme was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hillebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast at www.mountvernon.org. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.